This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. Today, train strikes have been cancelled at the 11th hour. James, is this a sign of progress? Well, I think it is clearly a sign of progress when strikes are called off. Whether their deal is going to get reached or not is, I think, still a question mark. But I think it is it is interesting that the RMT, who are extremely effective as a union, I mean, they've still got very, very high representation in that industry. The fact that they are calling the strike off, I think, suggests that they clearly think they are getting closer to an agreement than they were before. And what about the appointment of Mark Harper as Transport Secretary and all this? Because he's been making some comments this week suggesting that he would have a different approach, or at least allies of Mark Harper suggesting this. So what does that mean? So I think the, the, the personal dynamic between Mick Lynch of the RMT and Grant Shapps, who was the Transport Secretary uh, until recently, was clearly not good. In that when Amory Trevelyan became Transport Secretary during the Trust Premiership, the RMT made clear that they preferred working with Herb and they had working with Grant Shapps and they, they made progress. So I think it seems from this strike being called off that the, the progress that was made when Amory Trevelyan was Transport Secretary has certainly not been lost with Mark Harper being appointed to, to the role. I think there is a question here, which is, the railways are in effect nationalised right now, even if no one wants to say that. But the government doesn't want to end up getting in the room with the RMT because the government is very conscious on all of these pay deals that any pay deal you strike will then be used by other public sector workers to say, hang on a second, you're offering them this, so why are you offering us less? So I think the government is trying as much as it can to stay out of these disputes. But it is obviously quite difficult when effectively the railways are nationalised now. Now, Fraser, you're a man about town. Last night you went to the opera, I hear. And now we have the news today that the English National Opera could be forced out of the capital. Arts Council England reducing funding for organisations. What's going on there? Well, you're right, Katie. I went to see Yeoman of the Guard last night. It's Gilbert and Sullivan, not quite classic opera. But it was by the English National Opera at their home in the London Coliseum. And we find out today that the ENO has cut had lost all of its funding from the government, every single penny. Now, that really is quite dramatic. This is, there's a big news in the arts world today. I mean, the Donmar Warehouse has lost all of its money as well. The operas, um, they've got off quite lightly, just a, a 9% discount to what they were being paid. But this is, as to be expected, in a harsh funding round. But it also, I find myself conflicted in what I think about this. The, the Yeoman of the Guard is just an incredible performance. It was Every seat was packed. It was the opening night. Um, anybody who can get a ticket, I think, should go, if, if you like that kind of thing. It's, it's a magnificent performance. It made me just, just remind just how just good we are at this kind of thing in this country. But what I couldn't quite work out on the way out was why your average guy on a 26 grand salary should be taxed to subsidise the ticket price of people in that theatre? That is the harder question to answer. And then you go into the sort of, I guess, the moral questions for why would you subsidise arts? Now, you could argue, you could subsidise to keep something to keep it alive, but there's no shortage of Gilbert and Sullivan, and it's played in pretty much every capital city in the English-speaking world. And most of what opera do is usually, it's not really Indigenous British, or should I say Scottish. Now, to me, this is where we're missing a trick. Scottish traditional music is some of the most unique 
incredible and sponsorable. That's the sort of thing which I would like funding to go into. It's still quite depressing now that if a Scots traditional musician gets to any degree of competence, they've got to go off to, to Nova Scotia to pursue the career over there because there's a bigger scene. I would love to think that Britain would look after its indigenous arts in the same way that Ireland does, but that's not quite the um, quite the way it's happening here. So now I'm not so I can't say while I love Ian O and what it does, and I love the you know last night's performance, I I love its output. I can't see why it can't be strong enough to pay its own bills. I also think that America gets this a lot better than we do. In America, you get, they really get the corporate sponsorship thing done very, very well. That's why your typical American viol- orchestral violinist will get paid vastly more than somebody in Britain will. For as long as the arts are dependent on handouts from the government and are not really being creative about how they can get money from the big corporate sponsors in the way that the Americans do, you're always going to have lower budget arts, worse career opportunities for musicians, worse for society overall, I think. So I've got no doubt that Eno can flourish without quite as much money from the central taxpayer. James, for the context of all this, I mean, it's being billed as arts funding gets levelled up and it's part of a, a wider shake-up. Now, the English National Opera is going to be moving its headquarters outside of London, possibly to Manchester. So is this part of the levelling up agenda? Or I suppose these organisations don't really feel like that if they're the ones losing out on the funding. So, I mean, there are, there are two questions here. One is, I think the government is very keen to basically push high-quality arts outside of London. Its argument is, why do they have to be in London? Shouldn't you be, you know... Yeah, yeah. And, more than they can stand on the road two feet in London, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, Michael Gove is kind of very keen on, we know, on a, a V&A in Stoke-on-Trent. He's very keen to move the House of Lords to Stoke-on-Trent. And, and so how do you do that? And then I think the second question is, is Fraser's question about the justification for arts funding or for um sorry excuse the president's just getting out his, his takeaway dinner for arts funding and i think there is a there is a there is an interesting question here which is if you think back to the brexit debate about whether business was going to go from london to frankfurt people did say in a non-trivial way that frankfurt only has one opera house and I mean, there is an argument here, which is, you know, what cultural attractions do you wish to have in your capital city? And what are the other ways in which they pay for themselves? Yes, there might be public money going into them. But what other things does this bring in terms of business that comes to the city, tourism that comes to the city? And I mean, that, that is a complicated thing. I remember, do you remember when George Osborne had this big idea? to have a new concert hall in London, because all the concert halls in London have, by international standards, not great acoustics. And there was this argument that if you wanted to get Simon Rattle back, who was at that moment in Berlin, you should build a new concert hall in London, where roughly where the Museum of London is at the moment, and that would help that would help pull people in. And it was suggested in a, in a non... You know, some, you know, sometimes things are suggested that are half a joke and half serious. It was suggested that you should have a levy on financial institutions to pay for the cost of this new concert hall because they, in terms of client entertaining and attractions, you know, they would be the biggest beneficiaries of this. And, I mean, there is an interesting question about, about how you do that. And I think... I remember when I lived in Washington, there's a much smaller base there, but wealthy Washingtonians subsidised things like the Folger Shakespeare Theatre, the, the opera company in Washington, which had Placido Domingo as the director, which was massively above its station in terms of Washington's cultural pull. But wealthy Washingtonians dipped into their pocket. And I mean, the question in the UK is, how do you create this culture of philanthropy 
that we have on both a personal and a corporate level that, that we have struggled to do. And I think, you know, Frank Field always makes this point that Margaret Thatcher thought that when she presided over that massive cut in the top rate of income tax, she thought that what would follow from that is a much more US-style culture of philanthropy. And that, that is something that hasn't really happened. But what we have seen, James, is um, take London, for example, it's probably, it's probably now overtaken New York for visual arts. You know, there is so much talent, artistic genius in our capital city. Take Shakespeare's Globe. It doesn't get a penny of public money. I think it even makes a million pound profit. Now, in what way is the output of Shakespeare's Globe in any way inferior to the Royal Shakespeare Company? Why should the taxpayer be forking out for stuff which entrepreneurial artists have managed to get financing for? This isn't so much about saving money. This is apparently about is morality. Like, like as the, you know, there's a famous yes minister episode where they asked a very good question: Why should the man in the football stands be financing the evening enter- opera entertainment of a gentry? Now that's a very good question and one I've yet really to find the answer to. Unless you think that that art form would somehow be extinguished or disappear. The funny thing is, I've always felt as a Scot that down here in London, you guys are very good at importing culture, but not particularly good at developing domestic indigenous stuff. Now, I've always thought that the obvious role for government would be to provide that kindling to try to to get it. I mean, the the Scottish folk scene in London here isn't nearly as big as it could be or should be. I just think there's a, a whole bunch of missed opportunity in the way of getting money out of these banks. As you quite rightly say, James, they love taking their clients there for entertainment. They could easily be able to bankroll or, or fill the gap which is being left by the government but at the same time I do think we need to be a bit more imaginative and appreciative of the indigenous arts especially north of the border and to be giving them a bit more of a, a fair shout. Now the other news today is German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's decision to visit China to meet with President Xi to talk about the threats in terms of Ukraine and Russia. James, how is that trip landing in terms of both the German press and wider? So I think it is clearly causing tension even within the German government. Uh, the, the, the Green Foreign Minister, Bear Brook, has been very clear that, 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 that she is not entirely comfortable with the visit, especially the fact that Scholz has taken with him executives from Adidas and Siemens, you know, it's a kind of classic trade mission. I think there is there are some people in Germany who feel that they have just learned in the last year the dangers of the dependence they had on Russia for energy. And the worry I think that some people have is that you are now creating another set of German industrial dependence on China by trying to create ever closer links between Germany and China and that this is a mistake. And I think this is particularly controversial because Olaf Scholz comes from Hamburg and there, he is pushing this deal which would see a Chinese firm take a 20% plus stake in Hamburg port. And I think a lot of people feel that this risks the same cycle that you saw with Germany and Russia, with Germany and China, which is obviously a clear risk when you look at the aggressive language that China is using about Taiwan and the extent to which the world is is splitting into, into two blocks at the moment. And I think Germany is quite resistant to the idea of of a kind of two-block world. But I think it is actually something that, you know, that, that, that you've got to think about because it is increasingly becoming reality, I fear. I was interested to read the Chinese readouts of that meeting where they were stressing they both agreed on the need for a multipolar world, that they both agreed for um, closer German-EU cooperation. China basically sees Germany's arrival as indication that it's able to wrest the EU away from the Western orbit, i.e. American orbit. 
If you actually look at the Chinese press, a lot of them are seeing, are parading this triumphantly, saying that Schultz's um, his visit demonstrates the fracture in the US hegemony, etc. But that said, I was looking in the German press today for for what Schultz has claimed the reader, and he actually seems to have spoken relatively toughly. He says he raised human rights, which the Chinese absolutely hate. Theresa May, for example, was told not to do this before she visited Beijing and didn't last time. But he was talking about um, what's happening with the Uyghurs, how to discuss this is not meddling in China's um, internal affairs, but something a bit, um, but something more universal. So I was more impressed with Schultz's statement than I expected to be. But nonetheless, there is still, you know, to see him pitch up there with all of these businessmen in the plane. And do you remember Cameron did that, didn't he, a few years ago? And that seemed to be mercantilist politics, where at the time Cameron and Osborne thought they'd be opening up China, etc., getting lots more money. And then we found out that, first of all, there's hardly any money. And secondly, it's a very dangerous thing to do to sacrifice your strategic values in pursuit of a business deal. So after having made that mistake with Russia, you rather hope that Schultz isn't going to make it again with China. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. I'm now going to play you out the Yes Minister sketch that James mentioned. Why not? Yes, why not? There's no difference between subsidising football and subsidising art, except that a lot more people are interested in football. <laughs> Our cultural heritage has to be preserved. For whom? For people like you, you mean? For the educated middle classes. Why should the rest of the country subsidise the pleasures of the middle class few? Theatre, opera, ballet. <laughs> Subsidising art in this country is nothing more than a middle class rip-off. Oh, Minister, how can you say such a thing? Subsidy is about education, preserving the pinnacles of our civilization. Or oh, haven't you noticed? Don't. 